Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today's discussion came from our archives and was recorded in June of 2023. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, a longtime faculty member here at the Henry George School, who is joined by our returning guest, Mr. Mark Molyneux. Mark is an artist, radio host, and researcher who focuses on metropolitan resilience, urbanization, and housing affordability. Mr. Molyneux is a lifelong Georgist and hosts a popular radio show, The Henry George Program, on Stanford's radio, where he hosts discussions on Georgist ideas and concepts. He is also part of Common Ground USA's California chapter. Common Ground USA promotes land and economic justice through land value taxation, land trusts, and fair taxation of pollution or extraction. If any of you are curious about the Henry George program on Stanford's radio, we left a link to it in the description. In the 19th century, Karl Marx published a seminal book, Das Kapital, where he critiques the political economy. In this work, Marx coined the term vulgar economics or vulgar economy, which was a dig at frameworks created by other economists. However, vulgar economics also criticizes assumptions made by pure observations. To Marx, economists had to conceptualize more than just what they saw. Today, this can be directly linked to supply and demand analysis utilized by most major economists. When analyzing factors such as labor or land, it helps to build a more complex understanding of how these factors of production synergize with the rest of the economy. And our guest today helps us do just that. Together, we got into the weeds of the dynamics of housing markets, discussed why traditional policy tools won't help current unaffordability problems and why some alternatives may be better, and why property and land taxes can help entrench unaffordability. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Thanks a lot for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, the first thing I have to ask you is to give us a little bit of background and how you got interested in the political economy of Henry George and began your work uh, to to popularize the views that you learned from reading him or learning about him? I mean, I think for years, I was more or less kind of a pragmatist as far as what's working, what isn't working in the economy and so on, what is driving inequality and so forth. Uh, But as far as housing, I think... I didn't really have good answers for things. How are things priced? Why are things the way they are? When the 2008, you know, boom and bust happened, it was clearly goofy. It was it seems like houses are being speculated upon. Now they're being, you know, depreciating in value rapidly. This is clearly broken and I I I went into structural engineering in part because I think of all the things I want to see in the world, I want to see a world where the cost of living is just cheaper. I'd like to see right. cheap goods, you know, people who don't have to work like, you know, like a dog to just get by. I, I think it's nice if people have breathing room. And the question is, could we make housing cheaper? And I I think through years in structural engineering, I, I learned a lot. You know, when people do cutting edge stuff, it's usually to make innovative, flashy structures 
there isn't a whole lot of space that you can really do to make construction a lot cheaper. I mean, there's a lot of political aspects as far as permitting and other things. The hard costs aren't as meaningful as you'd expect. And then it really comes down to, you know, how is land priced? And uh, that's certainly a big factor. And I think you know when I got into you know what is the theory of of land pricing, I, I think you eventually come to Henry George. And when I read the Wikipedia page, so I was like, "Wow, that's extremely compelling." This is you know better part of a decade ago. It's like that's extremely compelling. That's just way too simple. There must be a catch. So I spent like a couple of years just trying to like tell me what the flaw is in this explanation of the law and rent uh, governing land prices. This seems too pat to be true. Why aren't more people talking about this? And I, I think I just got convinced that like, this is correct. And uh, once you know it, there's a lot of implications for drastically different tax policies. And then the question is, well, why aren't that? Why is that happening? And I think then you're in the world of politics, and that's where I've been spending, uh, you know, the remainder of the time of of finding out exactly why these aren't in place, and uh, for not very surprising reasons. Well, your experiences and mine are somewhat similar. Uh, as a younger person, I had the same questions that you had, uh, and I was in the real estate finance business. So I was making loans to people who were trying to buy housing and qualify for mortgage loans. And my generation had an easier time of it, even though at the time I was looking for housing, mortgage interest rates were pretty high. And now your generation seems to even have a, a greater challenge now that prices went sky high with, with interest rates at rock bottom uh, lows, and now they're back up. And so there's a constituency out there for your message, I think, particularly in California where you are, right? Well, absolutely. I think it's inter the tools haven't changed quickly enough. Uh, it's people <clears throat> who are still saying, Housing is way too expensive. We need to go to first-time homebuyer assistance, uh, which is you know just basically inflating the credit bubble. You're not really changing the fundamentals, and it when you are talking about limitations of actually getting physical goods to places, it makes a good deal of sense because if you talk about like the how people visualize a mortgage, it's like oh you need a bunch of lumber, you, you can get some lumber here. People need to live inside this you know lumber structure. You need the lumber now, and it's like. Honestly, when it comes down to lumber, it makes a lot of sense. If you're talking about uh, suburban sprawl, mortgage assistance makes a good deal of sense if it's really about getting that lumber. When you're talking about pre-existing infill or just kind of a pre-existing structure, you don't actually need to borrow to invest in stuff. And if you invest more, you're just going to bid up basically a, a positional good. So, but it's in it's really crazy. In, in California, we've had a lot of you know massive uh, investments in affordable housing and housing assistance, and it's still going in the in the middle decades of the 21st century into home buyers assistance. Mm -hmm. And like I, I just think it's it's a bit archaic. Uh, I think a lot of people are realizing, yeah, that that these old tools are certainly aren't continuing to work if they ever did. Yeah. Well, they. They did work. I have to say that, you know, during the 70s and 80s, these programs did help uh, increase the percentage of, of households who could afford to purchase a home and get in the home. The, the problem, of course, as you well know, is that they immediately became land speculators because once you become a property owner, 
you're looking for the increase in equity in that property for retirement eventually, or if you are a young uh, adult, um, perhaps single or married, and you begin to have a family, you might want to move up. You want to move out of that starter home into a larger home, and you're dependent upon the equity in that property and the land, the increase in land value to, to help make the down payment on the next larger home. And it's an ever-increasing you know, process of, of pricing ourselves out of the market in a sense. So you're, you know, these programs do have an effect. And I and my own view is that we still need them. We still need them now because we do not have land nationalization or we do not have land value taxation that is sufficiently effective to bring down property prices. So the work is really um, difficult. And you know, Common Ground USA has been one of the bright lights to help bring this whole question to the public and certainly your program and hopefully what we're doing at the Henry George School uh, adds light on the on the problem as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like most things, it's a mixture of good and bad. I, I think reform is certainly on the table. If you were to make it such that mortgages uh, basically, you know, let's say federally underwritten mortgages are limited to actually credit on the structure, I, I, I think that's actually a very interesting idea. Or basically, yeah, if you try to push more of it towards new builds, even if there is still a land component, that isn't ideal. But, you know, when you kind of inflate credit for pre-existing structures, it's, you know, it's not really clear if that's really uh, an effective policy. But uh, I think credit is still going to be part of, uh, I, I think, housing go going ahead in, in different ways. Well, it has to because household incomes and savings just aren't keeping pace with the increase in property prices. And, you know, what economists such as the University of California economist Mason Gaffney, did you ever meet Mason by, by or have any interaction with him? No, not in person. Actually, I knew uh, I knew uh, uh people who were talking to him towards because it was again in the scene mason yeah. i think his hearing was already uh kind of gone he was still yeah. extremely uh you know bright you know uh, you know through his you know, 90s uh but you know he's i think it was a bit difficult to have a conversation with him uh as much as i would have uh, liked to well his one of in one of his papers that he wrote he made that argument that you put forward that um that one way we could uh, introduce some reforms in the financial system was to prohibit any financial institution that accepts government insured deposits from extending credit to purchase land or accepting land value as collateral for borrowing. Now, that would not necessarily reduce property prices, but it would mean that um, we as taxpayers would have less exposure to bank bailouts when when property markets fail that the commercial banks at least would have a lower exposure to to uh, debt some other type of investor would come into the picture you know um, whether it's blackrock or some of the some of the instant um, the corporate investors would provide the down payment money you know for uh, mortgage financing but of course at a higher rate of interest because they would take on the added risk. So we really have, we really have a great need for 
the work that you're doing with Common Ground USA and uh, the, you know the efforts to get land value tax passed to get it to a point where it is sufficiently high, in my view, to have an effect on the market demand, and so begin to bring down land prices. Otherwise, we're still going to need uh, significant public subsidy for housing because there are a lot of young people who are becoming adults. And and uh, some of them, at least, were going to want to move out of their parents' house and, yeah. and strike out on their own. And I, I definitely want to uh, yeah, second that recommendation. Uh, Gaffney's paper about you know money, banking, uh, and basically his his spin on the real real bills doctrine. Uh, it's a fascinating idea that uh, I think as far as as far as our boom bust cycle, uh, you know the the fact that you know kind of the froth <laughs> that we built into the system of kind of uh, bidding up and collateralizing positional goods. It's 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 not great. Uh, but, but certainly, I think you talk about the fact that you know housing. Uh, is not working for younger people. I, I think depending on where you are, I mean, my, you know, my sister or something could, you know, get a place in Ohio without too much, you know, worries in, you know, her twenties and thirties. Uh, but here in California, you have people who are fairly well-paid professionals who kind of are uh, resigned to being a renter. And, uh, and I'd say there are two ways to deal with that. One is you, I mean, you can, try to change that and make people not renters, or you could change the way the tenancy works. So it's not basically a second class citizen program. You know, many places in Europe, for example, uh, where tenancy has stronger protections, people will rent their entire lives and that's fine. They're not a loser. It's, 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 they have, they have stability, autonomy um, here. Yeah, that's not, that's not the way that it's built up. You know, if you're not a homeowner, you're a nobody. And that's uh it's not sustainable if if now you have an entire generation of people who believe they're all losers. <laughs> like I think uh, something has to give, and uh, I think trying to look at programs, I think you one way to square the circle is certainly limited equity, limited equity uh, yeah. programs that uh, you know similar to how Singapore does their public housing. Uh, if you have you know public land, you know people sell condos off. You know they have stability, autonomy. They own that condo. Uh, but it's not the it, you, know, you can actually control it better. Uh, that's certainly a pro, that's certainly uh, an approach that I think a lot of people are exploring. There are there are quite a few limited equity cooperatives on the East Coast. Is that uh, a, an increasing uh, way that properties are being converted from apartment buildings, et cetera, on the West Coast? Is it are you are you seeing any of that in terms of changing the the market mix? I think it definitely has a lot of buzz. Uh, does it really scale up to create the number of units? I think we are continuing to, to hold on to our limited equity uh, institutions. I mean, it's not sexy, but uh, and there's certainly a lot of exploitation. But you know, mobile home parks are an example of that. Uh, and I think you know, uh, trying to keep people housed in those mobile home parks is an ongoing task because those right. are usually people clinging on to the edge of our the margins of our cities. Uh, land trusts, you know, community land trusts are a extremely exciting deal. I think the real question is, can you uh, do more to put land in a public portfolio or semi-public community portfolio, whatever you call it, into a community land trust that can actually house a lot of people? I think the problem is uh, what the land trusts we have don't tend to be 
well capitalized, don't tend to have a great reinvestment structure, and they just don't invest, grow more units as time goes on. Um, I, you know, back in Cincinnati, they've had a West End Community Land Trust since the early 80s, and it just hasn't grown. And I think it's desperately needed that places like that are actually offering uh, kind of an alternative. Uh, I think if nothing else, and there's there's a lot of questions you can have about the mixture of reinvestment of basically market rents into uh, new growth versus should you get subsidy for sub-market rents for your residents. Uh, if you go all on subsidy end, you don't have any room for reinvestment. Uh, I, I certainly don't want to say that there isn't room for subsidy in this mix, uh, but you have to find the right balance. And I worry that we no one is doing it to the other end except for basically private landlords. And that's uh, that's not ideal for a number of reasons. Let me ask you about the audience you're reaching with your radio program. I mean, I've I've listened to a number of your programs. Uh, I really found the interview you did with Patrick Condon really interesting and, and Lars Doucette and a few others. Um have you had an opportunity, for example, to attract uh, a discussion with major employers in in the area? Um, I mean, they obviously have a stake in affordable housing for their employees so that, you know, commuting times are reduced and uh, the cost, the, you know, obviously when housing is so costly, employees are going to ask for higher incomes and that puts stress on profit margins, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, have you have you had any opportunity to talk to any of the major employers and talk to them about these housing issues and and the land problem? I have, you know, on the show, I have yet to have a representative per se, but I certainly know how they exist in the ecosystem. And as far as uh, you know, the Yimby scene, people, yes, my backyard, essentially the broad coalition of people who are pro housing. Uh, a lot of these people are self-interested employees. A lot of them are tech employees. Uh, I mean, because th the show is in Stanford University, right in the heart of Silicon Valley, USA. Right. <clears throat> uh, and a lot of people, you know, it's either they are, you know, renters. They, you know, I mean, it's it's they are in a situation. They know things aren't great. They're, they're, <laughs> they're paying too much. They don't like it. Uh, and I think a lot of them also, it kind of just becomes, uh, an interesting political scene. It's, it's fun to, to scrap. Uh, so I think it's, uh, people getting into local politics for the fun of it. So I think talking to the employers, I mean, the employees, they, uh, a lot of them are, are, are certainly into the scene. The employers, they don't like to see, uh, their money be wasted they don't like to see, uh, overpaying for land. I mean, a lot of these uh, places, uh, you know, especially before COVID, when office space was at a premium, uh, were desperate to basically buy up, lease a lot of land. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, uh, the uh, As far as getting value back to the community, a place like Mountain View would be introducing things like head taxes on major employers. This would scale up with number of employees. And uh, Honestly, the amount of money it brought in was not that much. It was less than the amount of money they brought in through leasing office structures to places like Apple and Google, uh, which is, you know, I think it kind of shows you, you know, having land ownership in public hands, being able to lease it out gets you a lot of money. Uh, so it certainly is in the employer's interest to keep land prices low because that's going to uh, allow them to actually uh, 
administer the office space. Uh, as far as how do they express themselves politically? Uh, I don't know how it works in, in other places per se, if it's the same kind of way. I believe it more or less is. There's usually a regional kind of governance structure of big employers who work to basically uh, state their employer interests. Uh, Bay Area Council is what we have here in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, I think, you know, you get your Apple, your Googles, you know, places like Oracle, blah, blah, blah. Uh and it is, you know, not a secret that they work very closely with Yimby interests. You know, people would say, "Oh, it's it's just mean it's big biz." It's like, no, I mean they've shared interests. That's politics. Uh, so, I think the difference is it's. I'm more interested in. I I I think just like you know, it's not that exciting to see a major business interest throw the weight around. It's 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 predictable. They're pretty conservative. Uh, I think it's part of the political structure. It's just they don't have a whole lot to say. <laughs> I, I guess I like to speak to people with maybe more ideological bent. Uh, whereas uh, if it's like, here's my interests, I like to express them. That's, you know, it's if it's what you predict, there's not a whole lot you can really get out of them. But there it's interesting. To, it's, it's certainly important to understand wh- where they are. Well, our colleague, Fred Harrison in, in the in the UK has made the case, um, in my view, for pretty convincingly that the enemy of, or the opponent of, of the kind of change that we've been seeking is the middle-class homeowner. And it, there's a strong argument that he's right because um, let's face it, in the United States, the net worth of most households comes in whatever equity they have in their residential property. Um, the statistics are not that encouraging about savings and pension funds and and having investment portfolios. Something like one out of four senior citizens in the United States today lives on Social Security benefits alone, has no savings, has no pension. So there, there are a lot of people who um, you know, are looking to that uh, equity that they have in their residential property. And so the challenge is, how do you convince them? Um, it's in their long-term best interest to accept this system where uh, the the value of land may fall and their ability to build equity through through land value increases might disappear. Um, has that come up in any of your 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 discussions on the on the program? I mean, you know, on Twitter in my bio, uh, I, I say I I am an opponent to homeownership. <laughs> like I, I, I go out that far because that, that is something that, I mean, people it's, it's very weird. Like a lot of times that people take, you know, I'm pro I'm anti it's 50, 50. If you say you're anti homeownership, you'll get 99% of people angry at you. It's actually kind of funny. Cause that's something that's like, we all believe in the power of home. Like you can talk to Marxists, you can talk to communists. So like, it's like, well, that's personal property. We still love homeownership. It's like, Okay, it's it's very weird. If everybody's on the same page, something screwy is going on because uh, that's just not how how it should work. Uh, but I definitely think uh, a key is you know, I mean, in California, there's no toys around it. We've we've gone this far in the conversation. Uh, tax revolts, you know, Proposition Thirteen. Uh, yeah. I, I I think I, insofar as a lot of your people may not be intimately aware of California politics, should I give you a quick explainer? Prop Thirteen. Go ahead. Um, most, I say, many of the listeners to Smart Talk uh, have some familiarity with Prop Thirteen. 
but yeah, I mean, it has, it has cousins in other places, you know, up in uh, up in the Pacific Northwest. They have the Measure Five in Oregon. It's you know, they keep on trying to pass in places like Illinois and Texas. Uh, but yeah, 1978, it's you know a, a you know largely upper middle class, affluent, you know, predominantly white. Uh, tax revolt. Uh, there was a book called Revolt of the Haves describing what went on. Uh, the right. leader was uh, the, the the demagogue uh, Howard Jarvis, uh, who had a career in kind of the Birch, John Birch Society, you know, just a repugnant fellow, you know, just a vehement racist. But he captured the hearts of millions when it came down to, hey, wouldn't you rather pay less in property taxes? And, you know, even, you know, even in California, that spoke to people in a past with a, f- a fairly large supermajority. And what it did, put on the books, ad valorem taxes are illegal. You cannot pass new taxes that r- you know relate to the value of uh, an asset such as real estate. And the existing rates, uh, insofar as they're locked in to the sale price assessment, and you can't, uh, that can only go up 2% per year. So essentially sub CPI uh, most of the time. Yeah. And it can't be more than a you know one percent mill rate, so it's you know it's that's it still takes in a lot because when it is sold, when it is sold, uh, then the rate gets reassessed. So it tends to basically shift uh, to new sellers, uh, for new buyers. Uh, longtime buyers don't have much. It has a lock-in effect uh, in other places. You know, back in Ohio, uh, people moving from one place to another in a neighborhood is very very common. In California, people live in a place for decades because you'd be a sucker to move because you'd be, you know, reassessing your tax. People just can't really afford that, which has a lot of negative effect. You have people who are aging in place who would much rather downsize and they can't. That's not good. Uh, They've tried to, you know, uh, have a bunch of bills to kind of adjust this. But in general, it, uh, you know, I, I think that the strong argument can be made. It has capitalized these tax savings, per se, into higher upfront real estate prices. You know, this tends to create a larger barrier for people to get on the homeownership ladder in the first place. And I, I think that's really the big challenge to me about the politics of land value taxes, even if you do it right. Look up at Vancouver. They did everything right under single tax Taylor back in the 19-teens, was it? Yeah. But, you know, flash forward a few decades, a lot of normal people are real estate investors into their single family homes. Wouldn't you like to have it get a tax cut? They would. So unless you have some sort of governing structure, such as direct public ownership, perhaps strong, you know, bylaws that can't be superseded, that basically, you know, Make sure you can't do a tax revolt. You're going to get a tax revolt if you have homeowners. I don't. I don't. It's. I think it's an inevitability. I think the places that have actually achieved something closer to community land rent enjoyment have had public land ownership directly, such as Singapore, because you can't do a tax revolt there. It's. It's. Uh, I. I don't. I mean, do you think differently, or do you think tax? Am no, I too I, pessimistic? No, I. Th- I think you're absolutely right, and and Americans. Uh, have a long history of of um, being land seekers. I mean, you just have to think about the origins of the colonial, you know, migration to the New World, and what was one of the main reasons. Well, it was to find you know land that they could afford to have a have their own uh, you know piece of land that they could grow their food on and raise their families with, without having to be responsive to an absentee landlord somewhere in London. <clears throat> so 
it, this is, I think, been something we've inherited um, and our public policy response to the rising population that we've had and the disappearance of free and inexpensive land um, has been extremely slow. And so in my own in my own professional experience, we've had to rely on all sorts of gimmicks in order to try to, to some extent, mitigate the harm that the current uh, market structure imposes on, on communities. The, the the frontier in America is very key. You know, we we were you know a colonized uh, you know frontier in the world, uh, and then over the nineteenth century, as uh, you know, a lot of political uh, uh, conflicts could and were resolved through the endless frontier of the West, uh, and Manifest Destiny was a way to basically stop a lot of you know strife from happening. A lot of people at each other's necks. Uh, and what happened? Eventually, the frontier ran out. We went yeah. to the West Coast. No more frontier. Uh, I think something that you know, a previous guest yours, Christopher England, definitely talks about. It's you know something I think a lot of people thought you know uh, independently. The failure of the Georgist movement around the turn of the century was the fact that even though it seemed like that frontier was closed, we need to actually deal with this. We found a new frontier, and the new frontier was the suburbs. Uh, new transportation technology allowed us to basically expand the frontier within every metro area into more and more places out to the edge, which is basically new free land, free real estate. Uh, and it worked. I mean, it like I think that it, it incurred a lot of technical debt. It was not great for a lot of reasons, but this did get the boot off people's necks for better part of a century. Uh, and, but the problem is it ran out. You know, the highways are clogged. <laughs> like out in California, people people have commutes of like six hours a day. It's insane. It is no one should do this. And the the answer cannot continue to be drive till you qualify because you're you're going to we're we're seeing an end of it. I mean, you can maybe say, you know, is there going to be a new frontier? Is a new front frontier telecommuting? Is it going to be living in independent small towns where you only interact with you know job centers through the internet? Is it going to be self-driving cars in which you sleep in your car? I don't know. I don't. I mean, I I hope not. I mean, I think that I think that uh, cities matter. Cities are going to exist, and we need to make cities work. Uh, and I think these uh, band-aid solutions have have definitely run out of juice. Oh, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to live in the Philadelphia area. And one of the great benefits of living in this part of the country is that we have an excellent public transit system. And so I live in southern New Jersey, just across the Delaware River from Philadelphia. Um, I drive one mile to the train station, and then it's a 20 minute ride on the train into Philadelphia. Is that, that Petco? Petco, yeah. Cool. And that's how I got to work every day for 20, 30 years, practically. Um, and now that I'm retired, one of my one of my retirement activities is I play softball a couple of times a week. And so on Wednesday morning, I will sometimes get on the highway uh, to drive to our softball location. And I just see all these people sitting there bumper to bumper stopped on the interstate, you know, highway and some of the main main roads. And I, I think, my goodness, you know, how much time we're wasting, how much energy we're consuming, you know, uh, with no productivity as an outcome, just, and how can, how can we put the genie back in the bottle? 
And the answer, of course, is the answer you and I know and share with, with some others. And that is we have to tax land and and bring down the price of land by removing uh, the rent of land as a as a private source of income. Um, yeah, but, I think I mean, you can talk to Normie. I didn't I mean, interrupt you. Uh, no, go, go on. on. Yeah, but okay. So, I yeah, I think you talk to normies who would say, okay, I, I, this whole land tax stuff—that's a bit galaxy-brained. But I agree, trains are great, cars are not working. We just need to build more transit. And I think you talk about, you know, what actually works out there. Uh, it's, you know, no, uh, you know, it's no shock that in California Common Ground, uh, we are limited because Prop 13. You can try to have a frontal assault. You can try to carve out parts of it. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, the limitations on having a full land value tax are certainly closed off. But we have actually found a lot of interest in kind of targeted transit investment structures. Uh, there is a, uh, you know, we there is an ex- uh, uh, ambitious plan to expand transit in the 21 county region of the Bay Area. This is, you know, including Sacramento, Santa Cruz, Yuba City uh, called Link 21. And this would, you know, I think take... <laughs> Uh, take pressure off our congested uh, highways uh, by actually doing higher throughput transit. What is would the... that? Would that also require mixed use development around these tra- transit areas? I mean, I mean that's that's, that's, what, that's really yeah. what's necessary for transit oriented development to really work. And so, how do you get people to accept high densities and uh, and you know mixing residential and commercial and uh, office buildings together in the same basic geography so that so that people don't have to get in an automobile to travel from one place to another. Yeah, I mean it's 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 tough. I mean I think right now the state of the art is bad. You go on the Caltrain, you know, which is uh one of the oldest commuter railroads out there certainly on the West Coast. Uh and a lot of the stations, yeah, it's super low density. I I lived in Palo Alto uh 4 blocks away from a Caltrain station and single family zoned, uh, you know, just just nothing anywhere. I was living in uh, an ADU in the backyard, uh, but people are trying to. I mean, I think in California, their TOD is something that is extremely popular uh, among folks who know we need more housing, uh, and there's been a lot of frontal assaults. Uh, you know, SB eight twenty seven back in twenty seventeen. Which was you know unsuccessful, but retooled, brought back. These were all uh, essentially removing local, uh, you know, local permitting barriers uh, within different you know radiuses around uh, transit areas, uh, depending on how good the transit is. And I'm not. I, I don't think we we reached the promised land yet. Uh, it's we. There's still a lot of. Uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, density that is not there. We have a whole retooled housing element structure. I mean, you can get in the weeds and stuff. And I think it's unfortunate that places like Palo Alto still are preserving low density around the transit. But everyone knows that's a like that's a problem. I, I think uh, local local governance <laughs> is an issue. I, I think uh, I think there's it's I think California remains a bleeding edge. And how do you reform? Uh, just how local land use works, and uh, yeah, I, I think we're we're getting there. It's 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 a long struggle because people, uh, you know, localism has all the cards in the long term. Uh, 
yeah, state the states delegate their land use power to the cities. It's very hard to get it back, uh, but they're they're working on it. Is eminent domain a a potentially useful tool for changing land use from you know single family detached uh, housing on a quarter acre lot to something more high density? Is that I the. At the local level, it's poison. In some place like Palo Alto, I think for good reason, I said Prop 13 locks you into place. So if even if you're bought out at you know the at the fair market rate price, it kind of means you're displaced forever. So mm. if you have a community, uh, uh, I, mean, I think it's it's best understood to understand a small city like Palo Alto as like a big HOA. You know, it is run by homeowners for homeowners. So if they're going to vote on, hey, do we want to have eminent domain to expand, you know, basically our transit capacity or certainly to build higher density stuff uh, that people people are going to shout that down. Uh, can eminent domain come in at higher levels? I it, it uh, certainly it is extremely rare. I th- I don't know if it statutorily uh, they are prohibited, uh, but it would be nice. If the state government would just do more eminent domain. Uh, it, that doesn't happen. Uh, for anything less than Caltrans projects, the state DOT. Uh, and as far as that goes, you know, you'll see that happen in low, you know, low income areas for highways. Uh, that still happens to this day. It's kind of insane uh, that we still displace people to build highways and essentially nothing else, certainly not to build housing that's dense. Uh, but uh, the power is there. It's not expressed. I think there's limited political will. Uh, eminent domain is uh, certainly seen as unpopular <laughs> by, by many. Am I, am I correct that California is still experiencing a net outflow of residents and businesses? I mean, I, uh, my, my understanding is that the first phase was many businesses and then people followed to Nevada. And then uh, Texas became the next uh, attractive location because of all of the lower property values and and lower taxes. So, you know, is that is that something that you're you're noticing or that people that the political uh, leaders are concerned about? Yeah, there's there's domestic. I mean, there's domestic outflows to the Central Valley. The Central Valley being cheaper areas, Stockton, Fresno. Uh, and you know that it's it's people who can't afford to be in the in the Bay Area have gone further and further, but certainly there's been, you know, state to state displacement. Uh, I, I think uh, I don't quote me on it, but I believe we're still on the net negative as far as, far as outflows go. Are people concerned? Uh, I think, I, I, I think as far as the California uh, compact, which is we give landowners a good deal, but we have, you know, some of the highest sales taxes anywhere, uh, we have, uh, you know, relatively high state income taxes by state standards. Uh, and that's, you know, that's worked out, you know, fairly stably, largely because these continue to be extremely productive job centers. The Bay Area, Silicon Valley, everyone, you know, Cal- in you know uh, Southern California, the job centers remain strong. Uh, but there's always moaning of like, Okay, we're all here because we're here. It's it's a self-perpetuating cycle, you know. The job center is the job center because it has a history of being the job center. But if you were doing it today, they wouldn't be in the high cost area. They'd be in a low cost area. Right. But it's very hard to get from here to there. 
COVID, I think a lot of people predicting it would have disrupted it. Uh, I don't think that happened. Uh, I think that Silicon Valley is staying put, at least for the moment. So I think there's certainly uh, some stickiness there. So are uh, people returning to the office uh, more and more, or is there still a good deal of working remotely, uh, even from you know the tech people in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I think there's kind of a new a new compact, which is you know three day in person work weeks. You know, uh, four day weekends is is pretty you know is pretty common. You know, we work from home Friday Monday. Uh, I think depending on where you are, the office you know vacancy rate can be higher. Uh, in downtown San Francisco, uh, up there it's it's quite a bit uh, more of a ghost town. Uh, I don't know exactly mm-hmm. what the story is about you know what is going on with those offices. Uh, but I, I think that there's a bit more continuity with the uh, Silicon Valley, but you do see a lot of plans being scaled back. It was just announced this last week here uh, that Google was planning to expand into downtown uh, San Jose. This is going to be around the major transit station, the Diridon station, uh, which is kind of the super hub. This is where the Caltrain meets and the, you know, the regional rail meets and it's going to the green BART there. So all the it's going to be, you know, the Penn Station of 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 the Bay Area. Uh, and, you know, they're going to build a lot of offices right near there. San Jose gave away, you know, at a song, certainly they sold off land at a discount to encourage this. And Google said, hey, you know what, because we're doing kind of fine with our offices now, <laughs> we're not super heated, uh, we're actually putting this on hold. So it's like, okay, you know, it's this is if you try to encourage stuff through these kind of giveaways, make sure that you're not just getting uh, going to give stuff away for uh, and get nothing returned. Because it seems like they're uh, the old uh, kind of trade off of you're at least going to get development here. They're not getting that, certainly not for the foreseeable future. So what a mess. Yeah, cities make the gamble that by giving a company a huge uh, subsidy to locate, that the revenue generated by the employees coming into the city every day uh, will create enough revenue to offset what was lost by the subsidies. But from the economic analysis that I've read, it rarely works out. Yeah, and it, it it seems like okay, like if you do that and you're you're recouping it through income taxes, sales taxes, why not also recoup it through land value uplift in the long term? Uh in the 1960s, uh when they were building BART in the first place, uh you had the economist Barbara Ward uh you know come in and say, you really should be doing value capture here, it will pay for itself. Uh through the value, and, and they didn't. Uh, they had a bunch of bills that were kind of seen as too ambitious. Uh, they had these value capture districts that are left, you know, un, undone. They, they don't. They deal with sales tax because it was politically convenient. It's not going to upset anybody. And in the long term, they've left untold billions on the table of land value uplift. And I think that's there is a lack of long-termism. I, I think you can say that the sales tax revenue that kicks in year one, you know, uh, income tax year one, the land value uplift, that's a longer term investment. And I think it's not surprising that politicians will ignore a long-term investment in order for immediate uh, action. And I think that's unfortunate uh, because I think we're, yeah. we're yeah, it's no doubt about it. I I attended many ribbon cutting ceremonies with political, you know, people who wanted the media there to take their photograph when we were creating 
10 units of affordable housing in a, in a neighborhood somewhere that, you know, that needed infill development. I, 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 I lost the train of thought a while ago and I wanted to, to mention something to you when you're talking about community land trusts that um, I think the future for community land trust can be dramatically improved if cities create programs on a scattered site basis. The difficulty is trying to aggregate land contiguously. But if you if you create a program where the land can be put in the trust uh, wherever it exists in the city and and the opportunity then becomes one of bringing that land in the trust, at least for the time that the eligible buyers remain in that property, then once once they decide that they need to move on for whatever reason, that property can go on the market. And there could be some, uh, you know, formula for splitting up the proceeds of sale and the land can come back on the basic market and the proceeds of whatever profits are earned uh, can go into the land trust to help another uh, potential buyer buy a property somewhere else in the city. And I, 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 you know, I developed that, that, that scheme when I was at Fannie Mae, but we never could really get it off the ground. It's been something that, that I've, uh, whenever I've had an opportunity to talk to people who are in the land trust um, bandwagon, that that they should consider trying to push for that that approach. Um, but but anyway, yeah, that's that, interesting. I mean, to, it's 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 that's very at heads with the kind of you know, prevailing ideology of what the point of a land trust is. Because I think yeah, you know, the people who are most for it would say it's about acquisition of units to shield them from the market as a word, yes. the market. Uh, so you do see scattered site inventories of land trusts in play. I believe like the San Francisco and the Oakland land trust have similar basis of like, you look at, oh, our properties, and it is a bunch of apartment buildings throughout you know the area. Uh, I think that a major problem, like, I mean, you could say it's a problem I would say certainly a major problem is that it's stasis in the long term. They hold on to inventory. It doesn't grow very much. They don't change the inventory very much. They don't make it bigger or whatever. And that's a problem. Uh, I mean, your idea is not so much develop the land as much as, you know, kind of ride land value uplift and actually sell it off and actually get more money through. Back to the trust. Yeah, exactly. The it, next, the next, you know, eligible um you know, couple or a household that needs to find affordable housing. And- yeah, I think if it's an apartment, it's difficult because if you're selling it off, you'd either need it to be synchronized so everyone is out or you're selling it while they're still in there. And is that going to be displacement? Oh, you mean uh, an entire kind- apartment building? Yeah, exactly. That's a lot yeah. of CLTs will have a, an ownership like that. And, you know, it's kind of a related uh, kind of program. People are for something called COPA or TOPA. This is in several cities looking to be expanded community or tenant opportunity to purchase act. Right. Uh, you know, if it's tenant opportunity, uh, it, it kind of would become a co-op. If it's a COPA, uh, it would be rolled into a nonprofit or, you know, a public agency would be my preference. Uh, and, you know, that could be a land trust. And this would be a lot of times it's a, it, it is kind of a problem. What if you have uh what if you have kind of a small apartment building run by, uh, kind of, uh, you know, your uh, stereotypical mom and pop, but they wouldn't get out of the business. You know, the easiest thing for them to do is sell it off. Someone else, 
to investor. And oftentimes, investor will say, or before this happens, the easiest thing to do based upon a California guaranteed right to maximum land return is the Ellis Act, which allows them to uh, sell, like, basically evict everyone, you know, just, yeah. just like that. Yeah. Uh, because uh, for better or for worse, especially if you have rent control, your your tenants are ruining your your land speculation. <laughs> you know these these darn people are are limiting how far my money should be able to go. Uh, so th- thank God we we protect those landowners by allowing you to evict renters uh, to make sure that they don't get screwed out of their fair market value. It's kind of it's grotesque, but that's that's on the book. So. I think COPA is kind of seen as a way around that, which is you roll it into you know your local land trusts. I think a major problem, this is uh, under finance to do it at any sort of scale. Uh, this is another case. If you had a land value tax on the books, the acquisition cost would be a lot closer to $0, which means that, yeah, if, if, if kind of you just went out of the business, get out of the business. And now the land trust takes it over, but we just can't afford to buy it at this point because it's that land basis. Yeah, what people don't really accept, and and this is a great conversation we're having because some of our listeners, I think, will benefit from some of the specifics that we've gone over that they don't they don't generally get to hear, is that a housing unit, any building, is a depreciating asset, and so you know what's the value of a building? It's really its replacement cost less how much it's been depreciated. But that's not what how much it the property sells for because of the land, and so you know, so people have a great deal of of sentiment invested in their in their their building their property, but an unrealistic uh, expectation of what it's really worth in the market, you know, as a building. Yeah, it's a, it's a, people they lie to themselves. People say, "Oh, it's because I did a great job, you know, tending my garden, and I oh that one time I fixed the roof." It's like, I that's just that's holding back time. You know, it's that is not the reason your hundred thousand uh, dollar, you know, you know, tiny little box became a three million dollar property in Sunnyvale, California. Yeah, let me let's uh, focus the rest of our time together on a discussion about the attraction of younger people to the work that you're doing with Common Ground USA. Um, I think many of us are encouraged by the number of of young people who come into uh, the movement through Common Ground. And I just like to have have you share some of what you're seeing in terms of people your own, own age or younger and how they're finding the message that Common Ground has delivered to be attractive. And and are they do they really understand the the uh, the economics involved uh, or is it mostly uh, just a general sympathy with the idea that, geez, the cost of living is so high, we need to do something about it? I think that's I mean, for any political program to be successful, it needs to be a big tent, it needs to be a big umbrella and you need to get in, you know, basically eggheads and normies. You know, not everybody is going to geek out about ideology. Very few people are. Very few, very few people really care about municipal finance in an abstract way. Only weirdos do. Uh, I think. Uh, I mean, I, 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 you know, thank God for people who do. I think, you know, it, it's we we need the weirdos, but you need to, uh, you know, make it attractive to people who kind of 
don't think about boring, weird stuff. And I think, honestly, uh, you know, the YIMBY movement is something which has more appeal for people who aren't, you know, uh, weirdos. It's if you say, hey, I, I want to see more cute, walkable areas. I want to see more trolley cars. You know, it's like you can get a lot of, you know, buy in with stuff like that. And I think what's nice is that you're seeing kind of an interface between the kind of normie, you know, crowd. It could be everyone for like young people who just like, oh, yeah, you know, it's like we, we need we need more places to live here. It's too expensive, you know, and I'd like to see more trains uh, to, you know, kind of older people, kind of like the stereotypical, you know, uh, wine moms who kind of just want to have, you know, in our, this house we believe, you know, and I think uh, I think more and more people are going to, yeah, it'd be better if you. Uh, see more less exclusionary policies in your neighborhood and i you know but then when you get down to a lot of kind of uh problems as it is like oh who's gonna pay for the extra costs of schools you know it's nice you know who's gonna pay for all this transit infrastructure then you get the eggheads on board who kind of explain oh if you have a tax basis that expands all these problems that seem hard suddenly become a lot more tractable and I think what's nice, too, is that you get a lot of, uh, I mean, I would just kind of say pessimistic doomsayers who are kind of anti-change for various reasons. Some some of them are just kind of stick-in-the-mud conservatives. Some of them have kind of more can answers themselves, which is like, oh, you know, you expect, you know, private for-profit land speculators and developers to make uh, you know, housing uh, cheaper in the long term, you know, how are they going to build into a glut? You know, I think you can you can find you know more and more sophisticated takes. And what's interesting is I think when, uh, you know, kind of the, the George's paradigm, as it were, offers a very comprehensive, you know, kind of foundation for dealing with all these problems. It anticipates a lot of these doomsayers. It kind of understands where they're coming from. Uh, so I think... It's I think a good political movement is able to give people solutions for what they want to see. You know, most people don't want to see land value taxes an end to itself. Most people want to see a more vibrant, verdant, you know, beautiful world with cheaper housing. And I think that's what's nice. It's uh, it's a nice combination of kind of normal people <laughs> and, and problem solvers. And I think that's the real you know, real goal here. Do you think that there uh, there's there's sufficient thoughtfulness on the within the two major parties to find a way to bring these ideas to the mainstream within both parties uh or is this are are we really destined to deal with a very uh minor minor part of the democratic and republic part republican party supporting the kinds of changes that are necessary and is is the political side somewhere a battle between the greens and the libertarians well i, I can't speak too broadly because i live in a one-party state uh you know we, we have we have <laughs> you know democratic super majorities uh i mean nominally our local elections are nonpartisan. uh every, no one has a d or an r next to their name uh in practice you know people you know tend to identify as dems even locally uh, but I think it really means that you kind of see a lot of rifts between a party. I think you tend to see more or less people who would be Republicans elsewhere would be kind of a conservative colored Dem in California. It more or less means that I think 
the culture war isn't here. You know, you don't, hmm. uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of crazy. I mean, uh, we, we saw homophobic uh, constitutional amendments, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, but now that has gone way, way into the background. So I think as far as a culture war, that's settled. But there's a lot of kind of sublimated economic fights all within the Democratic Party. Uh, I think state to state. I mean, we, we see we see things like in Arizona a few weeks ago, uh, you know, the uh, there was uh, arguments against development because it helps land speculators and so on by the Democratic Party of uh, Arizona, which is kind of, you know, the woke way to just, you know, basically be status quoist, you know, uh, people like Patrick Condon up in Vancouver, you know, will take Georgist arguments <laughs> where it's appropriate in order to kind of fight against development and not do much more. Uh, but I think it's I think the overall alignment is clear. I think what you see in Long Island is you're going to see a lot more of that articulated. People want to build more apartments in uh, exclusive suburbs. And who is upset? The GOP of New York. You know, I, that's not surprising. I think the argument that you can get a lot of uh, kind of moderate, you know, fiscal uh, people who lean conservative to see the light, I think, makes a lot of sense in places that aren't so culture war tinged or are, you know, kind of adjacent to it. I think it more or less works. One extremely interesting rift I'd want to see more of is, you know, the Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber of Commerce, you know, in almost any city is going to be extremely change averse. They're going to be uh -huh. conservative. They're going to certainly oppose, you know, a property tax change uh, on the like, I, I think uh, to, to just as a sideline uh, in the last couple of weeks, we have seen or last couple of months, we've seen a land value tax study bill introduced in California uh, by assembly member Alex Lee. This got an incredible amount of pushback, you know, by kind of larger, you know, uh, you could say broader business interests, but certainly the Landlords Association, realtors, and a lot of, I think, interestingly tapped in interests that are invested in sprawl, the highway builders, people who are who do flashers for highway construction, uh, gas station <laughs> folks like, wow, okay, that's very interesting that you kind of all know what's up. But very specifically, if you talk about chambers of commerce, do they have the same interest? Because you have commercial landlords, you have commercial tenants. Yeah, those like that is not the same people. That <laughs> you actually have very different economic aims. And when you see things like California trying to pass a narrow, uh, a narrow constitutional amendment to repeal Prop 13 for commercial units, this almost passed back in 2020. You got you know, pushback by a lot of people saying that this is going to harm commercial tenants. Would it? The unfortunate answer is based on triple net leases, it would. The, there is, you know, almost a large majority of commercial leases say that any property tax increase will be borne 100% by the tenant. To me, that's anti-business. Like I, I don't. I would. I think seeing reform here because it's. Yeah, I think people aren't really as sympathetic to commercial tenants versus commercial landlords. People don't think about that much. But that's uh, that's one political battle out there. So I think the larger ideological lens of GOP versus Dem is hard to say because I think the only thing that really can divide them is culture war about stuff like you know, you know, social issues. 
I think for the issues as far as municipal finance, you're going to be a lot more specific. And honestly, I think if you talk about the Green and the Libertarians, I don't think that one, they are ever going to matter politically. And two, I think ideologically, they just don't really have room, their vocabulary to talk about municipal finance, you know, for better or for worse. Well, they can talk about it, but hardly anyone's listening. Or yeah, I mean, and the people I mean, who are the, listening are the same people who have been listening for the last, you know, couple of generations. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Libertarian Party has been taken over by strong, you know, basically Rothbard fascist. <laughs> like, it's like, it's a, uh, I, I'm, they've never been a very serious org, uh, but I certainly don't see much coming out of those two parties. In California, in the long term, you'd say that, you know, the general way that politics works, you'd expect a schism at some point. If we're a one party state, you're going to see two parties. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. I think you see a lot of kind of, you know, caucuses. You see a lot of, you know, kind of de facto blocks within the Dem Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, you know, you're seeing that on, you know, housing issues. How is this going to develop? And is there going to be a room for, <laughs> I mean, could you imagine that, you know, a schism would be kind of a, you know, pro housing, you know, ideological node, you know, with with George's characteristics. I can imagine. I can imagine it. Well, in so many ways, California has led the way for the rest of the nation. Perhaps not lately when when you refer to the cultural wars, but maybe uh maybe Californians will finally come to uh their their uh, common sense in terms of the way the uh, state begins to raise revenue. And so there's hope for the future that maybe a response to Prop 13 might develop. You know, a lot of a lot of these old property owners, uh, maybe they eventually want to retire somewhere else and will sell begin selling off the property. I mean, I'm I'm in the baby boom generation. I suspect many of those who benefited from Prop 13 are in my age group. And there, those properties are going to start transferring one way or another, uh, and maybe in large numbers. Yeah, would it? Would you ever? Is it going to be a peaceable transfer? Because uh, I think at one point, through retirement or you know the inevitable embrace of death, you know, uh, as eventually older homeowners are going to shift their ownership elsewhere. Is that going to? Is that going to happen while maintaining prices, or is there going to be a two thousand eight? You know, correction, and I don't know. I I I think that's an open <clears throat> question. Uh, I I I would bet by the fact there's so much pent up demand that it's going to stay nice and taut. But we'll see. I mean, uh, well, when I first moved to California uh, for grad school, I I read the quote pretty early that like you know California is the rest of the country 15 years in the future, and I think it's true. I think uh, the problems we see with our urban areas, I think they're coming elsewhere. I think urbanization is a process which will continue. And, uh, you know, I, today you might see more affordable living in the Midwest. I think that's, you know, I, I think the clock's ticking. Well, we haven't even discussed during our conversation today the environmental challenges. I mean, certainly California has, it seems like every week on the news, there's some new sort of natural or human-made disaster. And it's spreading all over the country. I mean, it's the rising sea level, droughts. Earth, earthquakes, tornadoes. <laughs> yeah, do, do you have thoughts in general about? I mean, that's a major political fight. Should the state continue to underwrite uh, the risk of living in wildfire areas? Because wildfires are happening. Like, we have a yearly wildfire season now yeah. in California. It's uh, absurd. 
and I think even in the Bay Area, you're not talking about out in you know Paradise, uh, you know California, where there are the fires. Uh, but in a place like the Berkeley Hills, uh, you, <laughs> it's populated by eucalyptus trees. They imported that to California. Uh, they have the minor shortcoming; they explode. You know, it is it is one of the uh, riskiest fire areas anywhere. Uh, should we try to get people out of those forests, <laughs> or like? Well, I think I the key issue there is that when when your property is destroyed, um, should the should the government provide low interest loans or yeah. some sort of grants to help you rebuild. Um, and certainly you know, the private insurance sector is going to raise insurance rates whenever, you know, their losses uh, cause them to, to need to get additional premiums coming in. So in certain parts of the country already, um, people either cannot afford the insurance that would be required to protect them and the question is, if they don't have the private insurance protection, will the government come in to provide assistance? And what you know, whether that is ex politically expedient, uh, but certainly, um, you know, we look look at our public debt, and we have to ask the question, you know, unless we change our tax system and begin bringing in more tax revenue. Will the federal government or state governments have the revenue to bail people out that way? Uh, these um, these are big questions, Mark. Uh, maybe the next guest you have on your program could be an economist who has some insight into how to make all this uh, work for us. Perhaps uh, dropping the hits, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, is uh, we about out of time here? Yeah, I think I think. Uh, we will uh, wrap it up, and I, um, I maybe if you want to tell the listeners who you plan on uh, having on your program next, that would be great. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, you know we had an episode on single stair reform. That's something we can talk about. You have land, uh, you know, kind of uh, assembling land. Uh, we have a, you know, I think surfing what's happening around the uh, the country. Well, a long time. Uh, desire to kind of know more about the wackiness of New York City property tax structures. Uh, have some more local local stuff uh, about you know Marin County. Uh, a discussion I had with uh, uh, David Colander about kind of macro, uh, you know, kind of inflationary issues in the 1970s and so on. But it's a grab bag. I mean, it's uh, I, I think you probably know it's you know when you do a show, you know, you have to see what interests you. So uh, and hope that the audience follows. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.